And before we get there, as you're getting there, I want to share with you something I learned this week that I thought was very important and worth sharing with you today. And that is that I, I, I discovered this week that chocolate is actually a health food. So follow along with me. Here's what I've learned is that since chocolate is derived from the cacao bean, and cacao beans are really vegetables, chocolate has some vegetable in it. Sugar is derived either from sugar or beets, sugar cane or beets. Both of those are vegetables. And, of course, milk or the cream that is made with chocolate, that's dairy, and we know dairy is good for us. So eat more chocolate to meet the dietary requirements for daily vegetable and dairy intake. And here's the, here's the health diet or the diet tip for you. Eat a chocolate bar before every meal and you'll eat less at your dinner time. And, of course, to that I would say April Fool's, right? It is April Fool's Day, by the way. Well, open your Bibles with me as we look in 1 Corinthians 15, and we deal with the concept of the resurrection. The resurrection is not unique to Christianity, but the way Christianity views it and understands it is quite unique amongst religions. So many religions have some view of a resurrection. Some religions have taught what is called soul sleep. And in soul sleep, the body dies and disintegrates while the soul or the spirit enters into a state of rest. Materialists believe in utter extinction or total annihilation, which means that nothing human, physical or otherwise, survives after death. Death ends it all. Some religions teach reincarnation, where the soul or spirit is continually recycled from one form to another, from human to animal, or from animal to human, depending upon the kind of life that you have lived. Others believe in what is generally described as absorption, in which the spirit, or at least a certain part of the spirit, returns back to its source and is, and is absorbed back into the ultimate divine mind or being. How about that? Unique not to Christianity is the resurrection, but the way the Christians understand the resurrection is quite unique. From the very beginning, the essential truths of the gospel message have been attacked, and most particularly, the doctrine of the resurrection seems to be at the forefront. Those outside the faith consider the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ, to be foolishness, an impossibility, a cleverly crafted fable to entice the gullible into believing the unbelievable. There are a number of popular theories out there that try to discount the bodily resurrection of Christ. The first one is called the swoon theory or the resuscitation theory, and it claims that Jesus did not actually die on the cross. Rather, Jesus merely fainted on the cross from pain and shock and from blood loss, and he was mistakenly buried alive. He would subsequently wake up sometimes later and get himself out of the tomb, but he wasn't really dead. There's also the impersonation theory. In this view, the appearances were not really Christ at all, but someone impersonating him. There is also the hallucination theory. This asserts that the many people who saw Jesus in his resurrected body just imagined seeing him. They didn't actually see him. Then there is the conspiracy theory, which suggests that Christ's disciples simply stole his body 
and fabricated the resurrection story. The last popular theory is the spiritual resurrection theory. This is the view that Christ's resurrection was not a real physical resurrection. And so proponents of this theory assert that Christ's body remained in the grave and his real resurrection was spiritual in nature. Doesn't answer the question of what happened with the body. But nonetheless, these are the prominent theories that attempt to discount the bodily resurrection of Christ. Here's what one author quotes about the resurrection. The truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all other Christianity turns and without which none of the other truths would much matter. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be so much wishful thinking, taking its place alongside other human philosophy and religious speculation. The resurrection of Christ is the cornerstone of the gospel. The resurrection has been the target of Satan's greatest attacks against the church. If the resurrection is eliminated, the life-giving power of the gospel is eliminated, the deity of Christ is eliminated, salvation from sin is eliminated, and eternal life is also eliminated. Without the resurrection, salvation could not have been provided, and without belief in the resurrection, salvation cannot be received. Listen to that again. Without the resurrection, salvation could not have been provided. And without belief in the resurrection, salvation cannot be received. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. So therefore, it is not possible to be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection. In other words, if you profess to believe in Jesus Christ, then you have to believe in the resurrection. If you do not believe in the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ, then you cannot be a Christian. Now, if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you kind of set the stage for what will be argued as a defense of the resurrection itself. Picking up in chapter 1 of, excuse me, chapter 15, verse 3, We read these words, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He received directly from Jesus that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures and that He appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, when he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, the Apostle Paul, who writes these words. So what we learn in this preface of what we'll look at today is that according to the Scriptures, Jesus died for our sins. When Paul says that, he's referring to the Old Testament. The Old Testament speaks both of Jesus' death and his resurrection. The most prominent passage of scripture you find in the Old Testament that speaks of the death of the Messiah is Isaiah 53, commonly known as the suffering servant passage. In Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost, he quotes freely from the Old Testament, including Psalm 16, as David foretold of the Messiah. In Psalm 16.10, he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Jesus himself taught about his own death and his own resurrection. In Mark 8.31, Jesus says, And he began to teach them the Son of Man, 
must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. After Jesus ascended into heaven and made his physical bodily resurrection known to the masses while he was on the road to Emmaus, not known by those he was walking with, he says these words in Luke chapter 24, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So the scriptures have told forth of Jesus' death and of his resurrection. And that's what Paul means when he says, according to the scriptures. So let's take a look at our focal passage here today. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we bow before you and acknowledge the absolute truth and authority of your word. Regardless of what we've heard or what we think, we pray, Father, that you would help us and teach us to set all of our preconceived ideas and all of our objections beneath the authority of your scripture. Would you speak to us through your word? Would you convince us of these essential truths? Would you help us to have a greater understanding and even beyond that, Father, a burden to share these truths with those who do not believe? We thank you, Father, that your word is active and living and sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you that your word will not return back to you void. And so we pray, God, that you would do the work in every heart and every life that you've intended in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at these verses, we're going to observe three major categories. The first one is the theological consequences of no bodily resurrection. Verse 12 reads, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So this resurrection truth has not only been under attack from outside the church, but it's also been attacked from within the church. Paul is writing these words to the church in Corinth, and he's asking this question, and it isn't completely rhetorical. There are objections to this truth of a bodily resurrection. So those who claim to have a saving faith in Christ don't seem to be able to come to terms with its reality, which is why Paul finds it necessary to address this topic within the church. 
So if there is no bodily resurrection, the first theological consequence is this. Christ has not been raised. Verse 13 very simply says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. So if the dead cannot be raised, then by virtue of that argument, Jesus himself also cannot be raised. Now, within Judaism, there was a group, the Sadducees, who denied the resurrection. They denied a bodily resurrection. The Pharisees, on the other hand, did not have that objection. Within the city of Corinth, which was thoroughly dominated by Roman thought and Greek philosophy, they were challenged to accept the reality of a bodily resurrection. One of the basic tenets of ancient Greek philosophy was this concept called dualism. It was attributed to Plato. And what dualism teaches is that everything spiritual is thought to be intrinsically good and everything physical is thought to be intrinsically evil. Therefore, the idea of a bodily resurrection was offensive because the body was thoroughly evil. For them, the very reason for going to an afterlife was to escape all things physical. They considered the body a tomb or a corpse to which in this life their souls were shackled. And they wanted to break free from that which would shackle them. So for these Greeks, their bodies were the last things that they would want to take along to the next life. They believed in the immortality of the soul, but strongly opposed the idea of a bodily resurrection. So, for the dualist, or for most Greeks, and perhaps for many of the Corinthians, Jesus was either a man or God, but he could not be both. And for hundreds of years, this challenge continued to be debated through the church. Jesus was fully man, but not fully God. Jesus was fully God, but not fully man. And when you argue that position and run it out to its conclusion, you come to major problems like this. If Jesus was not fully man, then his sacrifice was not sufficient. If he was not fully God, then his sacrifice was not sufficient. So when you enter into the mind of a Greek who would argue from the dualist position about a bodily resurrection, you could see why they would have reservations about this and why it's likely Paul found it necessary to address this within the Corinthian church. So these dualists assume that because Christ was divine, he could not possibly have been human and therefore only appeared to be human. He was like a hologram. He wasn't a real bodily form. Consequently, he did not really die, but only appeared to die. According to this view, his appearances between the crucifixion, with Jesus on the cross being an illusion, and the ascension were simply continuing manifestations that only appeared to be bodily. But when you look at this view, you can no possible way accommodate that with all that Scripture teaches. We learn from Scripture that Jesus came into this world as a, as a baby, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. He ate and he drank and he slept and he became tired and he bled. And, of course, we believe that he actually died on the cross. After his resurrection, he appeared to his disciples And one of the things that he had them do was he had them reach out and actually touch his body 
to confirm that it was real, that it wasn't some kind of a spirit being, that it wasn't some kind of a hallucination. Even though he could walk through a closed door, they still reached out and touched him to confirm that he actually was a raised body. We read this in Revelation when, when Jesus appeared to John on the island of Patmos. And it says this, When I saw him, Jesus, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So the first theological consequence to the denial of a bodily resurrection is very simply that Jesus has not been raised. Number two, if Jesus has not been raised, then preaching the gospel is vain. Verse 14a, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain. That word vain simply means meaningless. It means emptiness. It means without substance. And this is the logical conclusion of a denial of the bodily resurrection, is that the preaching of the gospel is meaningless. You see, without the resurrection, there is no good news. Without the resurrection, there is only bad news. There would be no purpose in preaching about someone who was a liar or someone who was a lunatic or someone who was an imposter who was not actually who he claimed to be and did not do and was not capable of doing what he claimed to do. You know, in our lifetime, there have been many false messiahs that have come and gone. And when we look at their body of work and we look at the reality that they have not appeared after their death, we very quickly discount them as false messiahs. So if Jesus was not raised, then preaching and teaching his message, proclaiming his deity, honoring his lordship, is simply a waste of time, and it further perpetuates a simply worthless myth if we deny a bodily resurrection. Number three, our faith is also vain, which is what the last part of verse 14 simply says. Your faith also is vain. It is vain because a dead Christ cannot provide life. A dead Christ cannot provide hope. Our belief in Christ would also be empty. It would be meaningless because we would be placing our faith in an imposter. We would agree with what the psalmist said at the low of lows when he considered what it would be like if his life was outside of a relationship with God. He said in Psalm 73, 13, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. Or with the servant Isaiah who saw absolutely zero fruit in his ministry, I have toiled in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. That's what we would have to say if we would deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. Number four, the apostles were false witnesses. Verse 15 reads, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So when you look at the life of the apostles and you follow them through the account that we see in the book of Acts and we read what they wrote in the other books of the New Testament, we would have to conclude, if Jesus was not raised, that these men were very simply liars. 
They swore that God raised Jesus from the dead. They claimed to have spent 40 days with him after his resurrection and before they claimed that he ascended back into heaven for all of eternity. They ate with him and they drank with him and they heard him teach. In Acts chapter 10 we read this. We are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but the witnesses who were chosen before him by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. The Apostle Paul made the same claims, made the same promises that Jesus appeared to him several times and gave him Revelation. These men spent the remainder of their lives teaching about Jesus, teaching his message, planting churches, evangelizing the lost, carrying out his ministry. And if he was not bodily raised from the dead, then they were intentional false witnesses. As we think about that, as we consider that possibility, We have to remember that 11 of these 12 men died deaths of a martyr. They literally gave their life serving the Lord that they were sure was raised from the dead. So those are the four theological consequences of denying the bodily resurrection of Christ. There are three personal consequences to denying this bodily resurrection. Number one... We are still in our sin. Verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. If there is no bodily resurrection, then there is no victory over sin. Jesus simply died, and sin was victorious over him. Think about all of the verses that that would contradict if that position were true. Jesus would have become a sacrifice that would would not have been able to end our bondage to sin. It would not have been able to satisfy a holy and a righteous God. It would not have been able to satisfy the cleansing from our sin. If Christ was not raised, then He did not bring our forgiveness. He did not bring our salvation. He did not bring our reconciliation. He did not bring our regeneration. He did not bring us eternal life. He did not bring us a valuable life for now. And we would have absolutely nothing to look forward to if we believed that to be true. Number two, the personal consequences, the believers have perished at death. Verse 18 says, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Think about that. Think about all of the men and all of the women in the Old Testament. They will all have perished at their death. Think of all of the people that we encounter in the book of Acts. All the people that we encounter throughout all of the gospel accounts. Think about all of the men and women who have served the Lord faithfully for the last 2,000 years. Every single one of them would have perished at their death. Gone. Separated from all eternity from God. Because no one could ever come to God if Jesus did not actually experience a bodily resurrection. Looking at the hall of faith that we see in Hebrews chapter 11, all of them dead, all of them perished. 
The third personal consequence we have here is that Christians are to be pitied. Wouldn't the world love that? Wouldn't the world love to mock and ridicule our faith if, in fact, there was no bodily resurrection? Verse 19 says, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Without the resurrection, we would have no Savior, we would have no forgiveness, there would be no gospel, there would be no meaningful faith, there would be no meaningful life, there would be no hope of any of these things that we as Christians cling to and hold dear in our lives. To have hoped in Christ and this life only would be to teach and preach and sacrifice and suffer and work and serve for absolutely nothing. If Christ is still dead, then he cannot help us regarding the life to come, and he certainly cannot help us in the here and now. If he cannot grant us eternal life, he cannot, he cannot improve our earthly life. If he is not alive today, there would, there would be, where would be our source of peace or joy or our satisfaction now? The Christian life would simply be a mockery. It would be a charade. It would be an absolute joke. But we can't end there, can we? Verse 20 reads like this. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Praise God, Jesus has been raised. He is risen. He is alive. He is alive forevermore. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. And He sits at the right hand of the Father interceding. For those who are his children. There are three there are four things that we are going to proclaim as a result of the reality that Jesus has actually been raised from the dead. Number one, it verifies our justification. We stand right before God by virtue of the bodily resurrection of Christ. Romans four Verses 24 and 25 read like this, But for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in Him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, and was raised because of our justification. The reason Jesus was raised, not only because He is eternal and because He is God, but He was raised so that we could be justified before the Father. The plan of redemption would be meaningless without this bodily resurrection. Jesus himself claimed that his blood would be adequate to provide for us a right standing before the Lord. He said in Matthew chapter 26, at the institution of the Lord's Supper, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Praise God, we stand right before him because of his resurrection. Secondly, his bodily resurrection demonstrates the power that is available to every Christian today. We have not been called to follow him and to serve him in our own strength. We have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit. We've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. God has made available to us the ability to do all that he has called us to do. We've been looking at this in our study of Ephesians and we go back to chapter 1. And we read these words, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. 
These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The same power that God used to raise Christ from the dead is the same power that God has used to make you and I new creatures in Christ. It is the same power that God gives to us to live out the Christian life and victory, able to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Peter would say it like this, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. The barriers that you and I experience in growing in holiness are not barriers that are the result of an inadequacy of God's power, but it is a barrier that you and I place in our own lives because we're unwilling to repent and die to whatever that sin might be. God has made His power available to us so that we can live the kind of Christian life that brings glory and honor to the Lord and makes our life fulfilling in the here and now. Thirdly, the bodily resurrection gives us hope concerning our own resurrection. And hope is not wishful thinking here. Hope is an absolute confidence in what God has said. 1 Peter 1 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What a great promise that we can claim from this birth. Fourth and last, His bodily resurrection demands our complete loyalty to Him. His bodily resurrection demands our complete loyalty to Him. He was raised and then exalted to become Lord over all of creation, including those who profess faith in Him. Also in Ephesians chapter 1, these things which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand, in the heavenly places, far above all rule, far above all authority, and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come that describes the kind of supremacy that Christ has. It demonstrates a broad-range view of the authority that Christ has in the now and in the everlasting. And He, the Father, put all things in subjection under His, Jesus' feet, and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. You see, Jesus doesn't just have a leadership, an authority, an exaltation over the created world, most specifically over His body, of which He is the head. So let me ask you this question. If Jesus is the head of the church, if he is the head of the body, and we as the body relate to that head, what does it say about our dependency and our loyalty and our commitment to the head? You see, he's not a figurative head. He's a literal head. If you profess and know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior... It requires absolute loyalty to Him. Thus, our lives belong to Him. 
Paul would go on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, And he died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. I can only imagine what it would be like if we owed our actual physical life to another human being. If somebody had actually saved us from death, rescued us, what would be our response to that individual? How would we esteem that person? What would be the thoughts that we would have about that person? Well, how much more so do we owe that kind of adoration to the one who has saved not just our physical body, but our spirit for all of eternity. The one who holds the keys to death and life. And by virtue of his bodily resurrection, has enabled us, has provided for us a path to God, to know him, to worship him, to be acceptable by him for all of eternity. How do we respond to him? You know, we so frequently go through the religious motions and forget the relationship of the one who loved us and saved us from our sin. As you think about the bodily resurrection of Christ and what that means for our faith, I want you to bow your heads and I want you to close your eyes. And I want to ask you this. To who or to what are you most loyal? What do you really think about the bodily resurrection of Christ? Is Easter just about getting together with family and having a big feast and getting lots of chocolate in your Easter basket? What is Easter really all about for you? You see, if you are a child of God, it should mean absolutely everything. Father, we give you thanks for the great love with which you have loved us. We thank you for the great sacrifice that you have given on behalf of our redemption. Father, we thank you that there is an empty tomb, that the price has been paid, the victory has been won. And now, Father, as we relate to you as your children, would you even now reveal to our hearts those things that we hold more dear than we do you? God, would you show us that those things that are not of God, those things that would be considered sin, Would you show us how those things are responsible for Jesus' death and then create within us such a disdain, such a disliking for those things that we would run from them and run to you. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today that has never given their life to you, that you would make them incredibly aware of that reality? Would you reveal to them what it is they're trusting in? 
Would you enlighten their mind and their heart to understand the truth of the gospel? Would you call them to yourself and enable them to respond today? Father, for those that ride the fence between you and the world, I pray that you would convict us deeply of our sin, that you would cause us to really change the focus of our life to that which would truly bring you glory and honor. We thank you that you've given to us the Holy Spirit, which enables us to live a life that truly can be pleasing to you. Grow within us a desire to do just that, to live our lives for you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who has been raised from the dead on our behalf. We pray in Jesus' name.